Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today we get a perspective on current market conditions and in particular how it's affecting the angel world. Modwena Rees-Mogg is the founder of Angel News and has a broad view of the market. She's really quite bearish just now, so it brings a very different view from what we've heard recently. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggested future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Mordwena Rees-Mogg, who is founder of Angel News, is involved in the index, and has fingers in many pies, I think. Isn't that right, Mordwena? It is. Very nice to see you, Brian. How are you? I'm not too bad for a Monday, although this will be going out on a Tuesday, which cause a fool's people. So you're a kind of a well-known person in the IS world, and for a whole pile of various reasons that we'll get onto. But some people, somebody out there might not be familiar with you. You want to tell us how you became involved in the angel world? Of course, yes. Um, it's got a bit of a genesis in the 1990s when I had been working in banking and left to uh, sort of get married, actually, and moved to the country. Very quickly decided I didn't like not working, so started working and helped uh, an American actually turn around a couple of businesses in uh, the late 1990s. And I got a call from um, his London team saying they've set up a group of high net worth investors to invest in this dot-com boom stuff. You notice I don't use the word angels or angel investors mm-hmm. or business angels. And they were basically a financial publishing company. And they said, could you launch an equivalent group in the UK? So in March 21, which, uh, sorry, March 01, yes, get my set, my decades right, uh, we launched uh, what was would be known now as an angel club. Uh, to show people all this dot-com stuff. But if you will remember, by then, the, the dot-com crash had started happening. So we sort of launched into um, a, a downturn. We were we were different. We didn't charge commissions. We charged subscription fees. And we had our first exit in four months. Uh, then the usual range of, you know, okay to disasters. And I heard the other day that one of the companies we backed way back then finally exited i think two years ago and gave its investors a good return so it's, it's a, a long-term it's really investment a, isn't it <laughs> it's a long-term investment and it's a, um, an interest but it's an interesting sort of microcosm of sort of what happens in the ter- in the sort of world of angel investing and what do you do now because i've mentioned you're, you're founder of angel news you have various other little fingers and pies as i said what what was your sort of interests at the moment in this world Gosh, I have lots of interest, as always, as you know, Brian. So um, uh, so we still do angel news. Uh, we've recently refocused that back on only angel investing. So we no longer cover, we were covering a lot of stuff on sort of VC generally, but actually that wasn't quite our zone of influence. We decided and focused. So we've reverted back to just doing angel stories and angel news, as in the name. What's really exciting is our readership's rocketing with that refocus even though we haven't particularly announced the refocus we've just refocused but it's obviously working so a lot going on there Um, a lot of interest in our new model people are beginning to get in touch realizing the sort of power of independent news service for the angel market that's read by angels across the uk sometimes internationally too we're running the funding index which is recording data on funding need Mm -hmm. this is a really important project because Basically, the world doesn't know how many companies need money. The only what we know is companies that get funding 
which is a very different uh, metric. And actually, there is an enormous wall of funding needed, uh, maybe not just funding for VCs and angel type unicorn hunting, but more generally. So we're looking to sort of begin to unpick that. So I think we're about 1.2 billion needed today. That's quite a lot of um, money. It's quite a lot of money. And and frankly, we're not trying very hard to find deals. In fact, if any of your listeners know of companies that are looking for funding, please ask them to just go and register on funding index. It only takes two minutes. And building that data is going to really matter for policy and strategy and the future. Yeah. Well, we all know, well, maybe we don't all know, but obviously the the sort of expiry date for EIS and VCT and these sort of things is in about three years' time. And there's already a start to sort of prepare data and prepare information for government to say, look, there is a need and these, these should be continued. I'm sure a funding index will be part of that. I would hope so. I would hope by then we'll have, uh, yeah, we'll have got more, we'll have more data and more time. We've been running it for about a year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the data's still, t- the time series will be really important, particularly as we move into this very new phase where now actually, actually we're not moving, we're in it which is going to have some very significant impacts over the next three to six months. I'm not sure whether people have really understood yet just how serious it's going to be. Mm. Yes, and that's kind of tees up where I was thinking we might go in the conversation today a little bit, because you wrote an article recently on Angel News about storm clouds, and I thought maybe we presage that by giving an idea of context. You've obviously got an overview of the angel world in a way that probably not many people do. You know, a lot of people know what's going on in their own syndicate, all the hear stuff's going on in the market. But you, you, you see quite a broad range of things. How would you see the angel market having evolved over the last sort of few years? So I would say bigger, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily stable, and bigger. Someone used the expression tourists, and I think that might be quite a good expression to a way of describing what happens. So the angel market follows the financial cycle. So having been around, as you now know, for decades, literally, I've seen it happen once or twice um, already. And what you see is the sort of boom, ironically, COVID, but the sort of during COVID, but post-COVID last year, sort of absolute explosion of activity very high valuations we can perhaps talk about valuations later that's an awful lot of what tourist money so a lot of money coming in you know people have used up their pension funds or whatever the excuse is or it's awfully exciting and then what you see is a correction and we're now going through a correction and the reality of the correction is going to be quite significant because all those tourists are probably going to see their portfolios which they've curated and, and curated or created and curated are going to have to be readjusted and the only way probably is down that means a lot of the tourists will get the fear yeah and will run away mm-hmm. so we'll have to then restart as the recovery comes to what extent do you think you t- talk about tourists which i presume are more of a cyclical sort of phenomenon it seems to me there has been also some secular changes in terms of my perception, and maybe it's because I'm involved in the market, it's hard to be sure, is that angel investing in venture capital has become better known. It's got wider acceptance, progress on being made, accepted as an asset class amongst retail investors. Still a long way to go. So some of that will be secular changes, and some of that will be tourists. Do you think the tourists are the dominant part of the growth, or do you think that the, the secular is a good part of that as well? 
Oh, what is it? They said Warren Buffett said, isn't it? Till not till the tide goes out, you've discovered he's not yes. really clothes off. <laughs> I think I think uh, you know I don't want to take the fifth on this, but um, yeah. personally, I think we'll have a much better idea in September. I think volumes has grown. I mean, you can see that in the evidence of the IS yeah. stats growth. Yeah, what is still and we've seen still, stats on articles about business a number of business angels and number of people yeah, doing very yeah. best and grow. So I've over the years I've had goes at trying to sort of identify and calculate and compute angels and I look at the visible and the invisible and you know the EIS stats give you are probably the best statistical source because they give you the numbers of investors and I would always draw people to that because if you knock out the crowd funders and the people putting money into the aim market very quickly you see the numbers are quite low they're in the in the thousands so um, I agree with you completely, Brian. I think the PR machine has worked brilliantly. I think there are some fantastic and there are more really serious, sophisticated angels out there. There will be more uh, full-time, what I call full-time angels who actually sort of running a, effectively a business or a, an activity doing angel investing. There are a lot more who it's part of their life and they're doing it regularly, whether they're investing with their mates or on their own. That's certainly true. But the volumes, I think we all forget how low the base was when it started. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the base of full-time angels, I used to know some of them, and they said they're very, they thought there were maybe 20 of them in the whole country. So, That's so, not so, very many so, at all. So the, fact, the fact that the base may have doubled or trebled or even quadrupled, even up 10 times, your statistics are meaningless still. So I think also the who is interested in it is very interesting. So I don't think our government is particularly interested in it right now. That's um, probably fair. I, I think the industry would like them to be. I'm trying to use neutral, uh, both both accurate and neutral commentary. I think there's a really interesting space around the sort of EIS VCTs investing with these sort of angels. Mm -hmm. I don't think somebody who puts money into an EIS fund is necessarily an angel. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, that, that, that's probably fair because angels do different things. Angels, angels get involved. Yeah, and sort of um, and make very much personal. I think also this personal decision. So there's your own money. There's are you helping, and actually are you making the investment decision? I think is a factor that probably makes an angel distinct from somebody who goes into a fund. And where um, would you see so, people who are in syndicates? Because certainly, I mean, you mentioned twenty people. I know syndicates with over three hundred people in. Um, yeah. and, and they're not all, you know, and I know that those 300 are not all equivalent or the same or in terms of activity or whatever. Yes, I think, I mean, I, th I think uh, I should think the entrepreneur who wants 300 active angels in their little business is probably has got some amazing brain that can cope with an awful lot more than I could cope with. So I think by definition, syndicates have to be largely passive people. Yeah, there's an awful lot of debate about what's a syndicate. You know, I was talking to somebody who's you know, like you, the 300 people, all all sort of collaborating to decide what to do. Then, but are they actually being an active angel? Maybe one of them is. I think the syndicates thing has become very fashionable. I think the long-term, when you look at the mature syndicates, where they sort of try to formalise them, there was a very good group called Go Beyond in Switzerland who were doing this about five, ten years ago. And they actually had a a really organised syndicate. So, you, in fact, you weren't allowed to be a syndicate lead unless you'd been a, a deputy lead. And you actually got paid, you got paid in share options because you were expected to do proper work. So you weren't expected to earn a fee, 
but you were expected to work hard. Therefore, the answer is share options. So that degree of sophistication I've not really seen in the UK. I've seen people who sort of call themselves a club, they call themselves a network, they call themselves a syndicate, they are just a gang and probably haven't ever thought to describe themselves. I, I, um, th- I think I've seen one or two where there's a fund manager attached, where there's similar sort of formality, but yeah, it, yeah, not in this actual syndicate. No, so I think I don't think we have a sort. Of, we probably don't have a legal definition. What I see is a lot of these phrases being used interchangeably. I was talking to one group the other day, and they were very much saying, "We're a club. We're a club." And so I was like, "Yes, okay, you're a club, but fine. How do you work?" They said, "Well, we charge success fees, and we put warrants, and we do this, and we do that," and they were actually behaving as if they were a network or maybe even a fund manager one might argue mm-hmm. yeah so well the, the lines very, are very blurry every time i think the lines are very blurry and it's it's not really my job to define what the right answer is it's more to watch what i haven't seen is some dramatic new solution and ironically since i ran my club back in 2001 I've not seen anyone do let's actually work for the angels and charge them but not charge money elsewhere because we only work for the angels. And that's the one model I haven't seen repeated, which is very curious. And why do you think that is? Is Do you think there's people don't perceive the value in the services or people's priorities about who they're willing to pay money away to the change or what? I, I think we're in a very difficult situation, which is the market has become so entrenched in its behaviours. Offering something different is quite hard. So so you think if people have this idea of a syndicate is X, where they go along their passive member and, and they just follow whoever the lead is sort of thing or whatever, and, and the lead might get some benefits of being lead. Is, is that the model you're talking about? Yes, I think what we haven't developed is, and I think this is there are lots of reasons for this, not least the way FCA rules work around giving advice mm-hmm. and also the, the cost, the economic model around smaller fundraisings and how you make it sort of, where do you get the money to make it all work? And so we have by default a world where no one charges, in, in fact, I have often have you know more your world's eis fund managers boasting about they don't charge investors which is fine that's their model and but of course they're charging the entrepreneurs and that's that's the direction of travel the market has been in for a very long time and then it's all about you know the success fee on the fundraising or the you know management fees thereafter so i think we are in a we're in a world we're in what i love to debate with angels is what do they perceive as value? And and what sort of answers do you get to that question? The risk of you providing my usually, questions. <laughs> usually, um, I hate to generalise because angels are all sort of rather brilliant and unique people. So uh-huh. maybe I could say themes rather than what they think because I don't think I can speak for the whole market. I can only touch on interesting points I've learned, which is these deals are small. They enjoy doing them. They like to sort of self-help. The, the sort of can I hand this over to you is actually sort of slightly counterintuitive to being an angel investor and being involved in helping. Do you, do you see where I'm going, coming from? Therefore, their perception of what they're prepared to do for themselves is perhaps different to what they'd be prepared to do for themselves if they were buying vintage cars or 
dare I say it, controversially going down the races, which one might argue might have some similarities, perhaps. So you have to understand the psychology. And only when you understand the psychology can you start talking to people about where they think they are and how they would. And I think it's not so much about where, why they should change. It's not for me to tell them how to change. It's more that what opportunities could be on offer if they wanted to take it in, take it in a different approach. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's so important not to tell people what to do in life. But and, to, I would imagine particularly <laughs> angels of all people who are probably, you know, fairly independent people by nature and, and had mostly had some degree of business success um, and probably better business success than I'll ever have. Yes, I think, I think that's, uh, you raised such a brilliant point, Brian. So this is a really interesting thing. So one of the things I do when I, if I ever get to meet one of these gazillionaires who's, you know, just made loads of money and occasionally people say they want to be an angel, can you meet them? And I give them the most boring talk about it's going to be really risky and this will be your journey. You'll spend a lot of money and it'll feel really exciting. And then 12 months in, it'll feel a lot less exciting. And then you'll have to go through that sort of dip and come out the other side. And they will just completely, you know, you can just see they just turn off their earphones and um, you know, zone out because they don't want to hear that. What they want to hear is it's going to be fun and exciting. And then, of course, two years later, they don't want to talk to me because if I was even marginally right, they're very confident. <laughs> <laughs> but fair enough, I can only do what I do. What I think I think angel investing is a fantastically brilliant activity. I think in all industries, things can be done better, but we need to really listen to the angels about what they not only want but maybe need, but haven't yet necessarily had that articulated in a way that they go, you're right. So how do you think things could be done better? I mean, you obviously talked about different models. What, what else do you think oh, could happen? Should I just get, I'm not going to sort of tell people how to pay, but I'm going to give some practical tips as you're asking. So one is, please, please, please keep all your deals on a spreadsheet. You don't, nothing more. And keep all the paperwork in a, data room on Dropbox somewhere in a cohesive place. Particularly, and we've, we did a talk about this last year, um, particularly if sadly you drop dead, I'll just stick it out there. Because uh, I'm, the number of agents I've talked to about this issue is like, you know, are you in control from an administrative perspective of your portfolio? And I promise you about 95% of people say no. Well, they don't say no because, you know, I don't actually call it out, but I let them think about it and they usually think they realize no. they, could, they could be doing it better than they are no well you know not for me to say well I'm, I'm going to just suggest you know a, an option but if they drop dead so these are really important facts to get out one eis dies with you most people don't know that so all your all your eis ta tax breaks die with you estates have to go through probate before they get to your partner or your children most people say don't i don't worry about that madwena because it's all going to go to my missus and then i say because it is still men mainly. And then they go, and I go, well, so what does your missus, you know, what is she involved in it? She says, no, she hates it. <laughs> <laughs> so this woman who hates yeah, money and finance is going to be dumped with a whole pile of ES investments. You're going to dump all this stuff on your poor grieving widow or widower and not going to be in order and they've got to deal with it. And most importantly, it has to get through the executors before it gets to the widow or widower or children. So think about that. Have you got the right executors? who can deal with this stuff because if you haven't the reality is the lawyers because the executors will find this and get worried they will ring up the lawyers 
and the accountants. And the fees the estate will have to pay just to get this through probate will be significant, let alone should a corporate event happen during probate where there might be a funding round. So all I can do is say to everybody, please get your spreadsheet. You can do that yourself. Get all your paperwork in one place. Leave a set of instructions because that would be a massive way to help everybody. So you touched on the wonderful topic of valuations earlier on. And it seems to me a lot of the issues you speak about probably have valuation at the core or a very strong part of what's going to go on. Because you said the fallout comes September. And presumably some of what you mean by that is a lot of people are going to find that the value of what they put money in six months ago or 12 months ago is not going to be quite as much as they thought. Well, we do have this knotty issue of fair market value. Mm. Part of me at the back of my mind is how how strong do you think that is for angels? Because a lot of them, the money's there, it's invested, so long as not invest more cash. In one sense, the market value isn't that important most of the time. Ah, so from a technical perspective, why it matters is if something's worth nothing, if you come to the view that it's to be written off, If you write to HMRC, you can claim loss relief. Yes. You don't have to sell the shares to claim your loss relief. Okay. Now, you can just write to HMRC and say, I don't think a share's worth anything anymore, and they may give you a loss relief. Unfortunately, HMRC does have a data lake to die for, and you know what the HMRC are like about collecting tax. So what was quite a niche activity by the most sophisticated angels who knew this, how to do this, is something that should be used by more people. So. The need for valuations is ever more important because actually you may need to use your loss relief before that aforementioned drop in dead date. Because that's your if you if you die before you use your loss relief, then bad luck, you've lost the opportunity to get it. So if there's no other reason than having a regular update on your valuation of your portfolio, it's for the very practical reason that you could claim loss relief, retain title to the shares. You, they lose their tax breaks. So if they suddenly take off, you'll, you'll be in for capital gains. But frankly, you've had your loss relief and presumably you believe that's it. So this is rather a technical issue, but it's really important. So if you look at what's happened with the US tech sell-off and how that's going into US tech private equity and VC now, and you, we're seeing the UK, but I was talking to someone who reads the markets well, and they're like, this, this is the first wave of sell-off, not the final wave of sell-off. Right. So, so, so when we look at, I mean, I mean, we can look at Nasdaq, and we've got the likes of Zoom and Peloton down eighteen percent or whatever it is. Do you think that, you know, I don't want to pick those in particular. So, you think there's more to go, or do you think it's a case of private markets are lagging the the quote markets a bit? No, I think the acknowledgement of the decrease in value is lagging. Not that the values haven't dropped. So I looked at a. Um, so I, one of the things I'm being asked to do increasingly is value companies, which is getting quite busy actually. So it's really interesting looking at all these private companies and the valuations and stuff. And for one of them, I had to do a little subset valuation of quoted small, really small micro cap companies on the US on the UK market. Uh-huh. So I found my went off and got my little list of comparables. And they were all micro cap, and they were still off 30, 40%. That's today, well, that's last week. And off the, that, that, that's, that's valuations from last year, or presumably? No, no, this is, this is current market valuations for small cap quoted companies. Oh, right. Oh, so, these, so this is listed companies. Off, 
the listed companies, they're all off 30, 40 percent since the beginning of the year. So the idea that miraculously private companies, which are frankly more illiquid, the minority stakes, there's all sorts of nasties in the waterfalls and tag and drag, which make liquidity. You know, the idea that you can say these are miraculously suddenly worth just the same as they were even in January. It's fine if it's your private portfolio. You can frankly put in whatever number you like. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But you should be honest about where you think things are. And if, again, with the drop dead date, remember, if you've got them in at the wrong price on your spreadsheet, you're going to make life very painful for your executors. Our previous guest, Andy Davidson, had this very nice thing about you that with a lot yeah. of these companies and that if they're not going up, then they're going down. You know, yeah. and, and almost nothing that, that we're investing in, even though private markets tend to smooth out, the, va- the real company valuation is almost never what you've just put the money in at. No, because there's always that hope value. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, the lovely thing about being an angel, it's private. I often describe it as a, like a man cave for investing. <laughs> you know, and, and great and absolutely right. That's how it should be. But there's, there's being in your man cave and fantasizing and there's being in your man cave and going, actually, I know where I am. Yeah. So how confident do you feel that we, the bubble is bursting? Because we had, if you think about two years ago, we had a market crash at the start of the pandemic, at least a quoted market crash, and it came down and bounced back so quickly that private markets kind of skated over that. And... You know, there was maybe a hiatus in transactions, but valuations weren't impacted. Do you, do you think there's uh, that the same thing could happen now, or do you think we, it, it's oh, well, completely I think, different? I think, there's some, I think there's some different forces. Funny enough, I was on a call this morning with somebody saying, you know, this is a new sort of crisis that's emerging that people haven't necessarily understood. Right. Anyway, I would say that because I'm a journalist. It's much more fun to talk about okay. crises. So, yes. you know, p- please feel free to, you know, kick back. What do I think is, I think... Post-COVID, we forget just how much liquidity the government poured into the economy. So the amount of cash just knocking around to enable, you know, clearly to achieve the results it needed to, but enough spare money, new walls of money going into, I think VCTs have their peak fundraising year ever, the year to April. And and not just the UK government, I mean, the US government and and various other countries, developed countries did the same. Yeah, but that's a one-off. And as far as I know, our government's not planning to do the same again to such a degree. So they might, uh, and you know, uh, well, let's hope they do the right things for the right people. But it's likely that support is not going to be finding its way in the same way to the, into the same hands. Well, 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 touch wood, we're not going to have the same crisis happening. Which, you know, so, so there's not going to be the need for it. At least that's what we all hope. That's what we all hope. I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I think in the angel world, historically, and clearly this might be different, what happens is there's a crash, everything shuts down for quite a while, and then it starts emerging again. So what you don't get is a V-shape, you get a whatever it is. a U or bath-shaped, as they used to call it. U or bath-shaped or what, yes, I'm sure there's there's some, maybe it's like, you know, some sort of Greek symbol. Anyway, so that's what's happened in the past. I think there's another really important issue is where is the money? So in what pockets is the money as we come to the, through to the autumn? Well, well, the gossip I hit, well, more than gossip, I mean, you look at PitchBook, over the last couple of years, a lot of private market funds, not, not the EIS VCT, 
although VCTs, as you alluded to some extent, but a lot of VCT funds have raised a lot of money and are still, to some extent, sitting on dry powder. So there is some money out there, I think. So, yes, all question, question is drawdown, of course. So yes. is that money actually sitting in a bank account ready to be spent or is it a call on the investors? Yes. In which case, will they? Because what we had after the financial crash was, yes, there was a wall of money. But when people rang up and said, Mr. Pension Fund, can I have it? They said, uh, sorry, being diverted to another another use. Calls next so, year. Um, yeah. So um, what I think is there's going to be a flight to quality, uh-huh. to be positive. There's going to be a flight to... Uh, Stuff. So you've got this really interesting situation now where you've got a load of stuff that's been funded. A lot has been funded on the basis it needs more funding to get there till it eventually miraculously becomes that's a unicorn. That's the capital model. That's very interesting in a world where there's businesses which are have no plan to get to cash flow break-even anytime soon. There's an interesting dynamic there to be thought about because how are they going to be funded through those many rounds? Where's that money? The other one is... You know, um, what the angels are saying to me is we haven't been investing for the last two years anyway, the smart ones, because they knew what was coming. Um, and they're just rubbing their hands and waiting for the down rounds and the, and the new. Remember, this is the phase when the new Googles and Airbnbs will will start mm-hmm. in the next 12 months. So they're absolutely rubbing their hands going, well, the, the stuff that can survive you know, a crisis and come through, I'll be able to pick up now at a lower valuation because they're more humble. And the, the, there'll be some really exciting new stuff. And were they setting out on the basis of valuations as a whole or, or the companies being started? Or or why why do you think they were sitting out? Valuations, because it was nuts. They're never going to make a return. If you're an early stage investor and you invest too high, you will just, the combination of dilution and waterfalls means you may you know, um, your chance of actually making a, the return you just, this is another thing, not enough people talk in my view about risk. Mm-hmm. So people talk about returns, but they don't talk about risk. What you need to do is think about risk. And when they think about the risk they're taking with their cash, because frankly, they could spend it somewhere else. And frankly, they could get 10% off of some, you know, international bond, you know, equity fund, which is spread across half the world. So the extra risk they're taking, they need a superlative return. And that doesn't happen if you go in too high. QED, you don't invest. And and then presumably when you say values, we're not talking they're 20% higher or 30% higher than they should be. You know, are we talking they're double or triple? Is that is that really what we're saying here, do you think? Oh, I, you need you not, Brian. I'm going to take the fifth on that one because okay. I just don't have enough data. Things have been pretty toppy for a while. It's certainly been a recurrent theme. And if I had, probably had one topic that, People have expressed concerns about most on the podcast. It's values have been so high. And, and frankly, conversations I had for even a couple of years before we started the podcast were uh, mentioning it's kind of too high. They, they think values are higher than they should be. Well, it, it's really interesting. So the work I do at the moment, we we sort of disregard what other people are, are saying. We we look at the fundamentals mm-hmm. and we, we look to see what that produces. And then we look at risk so produced in terms of cash flows or or revenues yeah. in the future yeah we look at cash flows and remember cash flows and revenue forecasts are you know what they are let's just They're say forecasts with They're forecasts. uncertainty at best uncertainty at best and then we then we look at sort of the risks associated with those financials and what we're finding is even based on sort of comparable transactions you know the sort of current market data which you might say was the 
let's say the the truth as much as you can say anything in valuations so is current, the truth. as in the last month or a couple of months sort of thing even then we're seeing people have been historically in recent months paying far more now that's because of what you wisely said earlier this hope value thing so they're not necessarily irrational i'm not saying i'm not saying they're wrong because every valuation ironically you can only really value on it one day because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But even so, I would say it's certainly something I think there needs to be a lot more discussion and most importantly, less so for angels, but for people who've got funds and have got to apportion their funds, June is going to be really, the June quarter is going to be really interesting to see what the what the people who are, as it were, the professionals, what they're coming out with. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that a lot of them kind of default to is last transaction and the vast majority of investments of funds are whatever the last transaction was now there's clearly if if that was last week then that by the end of june that might be not be reasonable if that was last year or 12 months ago then then maybe maybe it's going to need more skeptical eye if if i was taking a view i'd say anything before february you know, because Ukraine is the sort of Ukraine is the date that that was a trigger point. You think this, kicked off? Well, it kicks off. It's it's a, if if you're picking a date in the past, probably mid end of Feb is the critical juncture. So, I, if yes, if I was looking at anything which says is claiming it was worth the same as it was last February, this recent this recent February, I would be asking for updates on. I mean, nobody's taking into account inflation. Have you? Do you know about the rule of twenty, Brian? The rule of 20? I know the rule, the rule of 72, but I don't know about the rule of 20. Well, the rule of 20 is that the yields on quoted bonds should uh, add 20 minus the yield on quoted bonds is the PE ratio. That's a new one to me. I, I've only worked in markets for 25 years. <laughs> well, here's a new thesis, and I will wait, and hopefully lots of people react to this and come back at me and and debate with me. So there's a new thesis, which is the rule of 20 in venture capital, which is inflation plus EBITDA equals 12. So I'll leave you to noodle on inflation plus EBITDA equals 12 and what valuations should be. I think I'll have to cogitate on that after the podcast because I don't think I could quite, my brain can quite cope with doing that while we speak. <laughs> no, well, I think it means EBITDAs of three. Right. And if inflation goes to 10 or 11, it's EBITDAs of two or one. I'm, I'm hoping we're close to peak inflation. Um, but, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. That's a hope. I've been writing about that for a quoted uh, person. The more I write, the less confident I get in my view about the transients. Well, that's why I'm not trying to sound right. I'm trying to just push it out there for debate. I think I think what it what it's trying to say is, inflation really matters more that's really the message and i've not uh, you know are people uh, you might be old enough brian i'm not sure i'm just about old enough to remember things like current, current cost accounting i studied it for my actuarial exams though at the time i wondered why i was studying it it seemed rather antiquated and and, and irrelevant um, i do remember that <laughs> but brian actually i'm going to hope you're going to come back when the recovery and it's all booming uh, please come back and I'll you can interview me and I'll be saying the direct opposite of what I'm saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're a journalist. You have the right to change your mind. 
and the, and the job of a journalist is to be interesting, not always to be right. <laughs> so you referred earlier to another one of your interests, which is funding index. And, and then there's a huge, what you say, demand. I, I think linking back to what we've just spoken about, if valuations are coming down, does that demand for funding come down? Because if they're thinking, if there's a company saying, well, price of toppy, I might as well raise 10 million now if I can, or a million pounds just now. And they might say, well, actually, I only need half that and they'll just settle for half. If I was being an entrepreneur right now, mm-hmm. I would be looking for cash flow viability. Yeah. I'll be looking for business models where I can make revenue, have happy customers, and turn a profit. So it's that batting down that, the hatches again. That, and That's not necessarily the – that could be plan A. Plan B might be the, you know, unicorn. If you can get the funding, presumably. Well, the, typically unicorns need feeding with money to get there. And in, the, in a world where that might become much more constrained, indeed, even if there's money available, the amount or the valuations that people are prepared to invest at, the pressure – of trying to grow a business in an inflationary environment, which might become, you know, even, even Brian, I know we're talking about 9% now, and are we, you know, skeptics might say going north, enthusiasts might say, but I don't think we're going back to basically a zero inflation environment anytime soon. That is, is fair. We've had a, you know, a very benign, you know, actually, probably 15, 20 years. There are a whole generation of people who've simply never been adults in in a situation where inflation, even if it's knocking around 5%. That's what I'll be doing. If if you're doing that, I promise you the money will be chasing you. I was wondering, there's two sides to inflation in that it seems to me that where companies have pricing power, and maybe it's contingent on that, inflation allows companies to push prices up as well. And I, I think one of the things we've probably seen is a lot of, is companies doing that where they have price and power already. Do you think that maintains and, and offsets pressures on costs? Or do you think it's kind of, you know, that, that's too general a question? I think, I think we still live in a free market and competition will arrive. Uh-huh. So I, think, I mean, I think Netflix is really interesting. So, you know, Netflix has tried to push up its prices by a mere quid a month or whatever. And, but you've got Disney Plus, you've got, you know, others prepared to deliver content, you know, at all sorts of different price points. So how are you going to make this square this circle? So, yes, you might get a temporary advantage, but you basically, if you want to win long term, you need to be actually better, faster and cheaper. Same as ever, really. Same as ever. So, you know, and I think also if you're pushing up, if you're pushing up prices, you may be able to have a temporary increase, but your staff are going to start noticing and demanding more money. Your suppliers are going to start noticing and demanding more money. So you'll get a you might get a marginal advantage temporarily. I think also I'm not sure people have fully understood what particularly big corporates what they're going to be looking like in terms of their budgeting. Do you mean in terms of buying services or in terms of M and A is presumably out the window? I've always lived a life where I've assumed that I've got an appalling competitor, which is called I'm happy as I am already. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as someone said, the, 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 fir- the first competition for most software is a spreadsheet. Almost regardless of what you're yeah. doing, someone's doing it on a spreadsheet. C- correct, correct. And, you know, most people are actually coping okay today 
you know, very few people are not able to go to work because some new gadget hasn't been introduced to the market. Now, you do see you do see some really clever things. I've just seen one thing, which is actually it's not very techy, but it's really clever because it's meeting a un- completely unmet need, but it's not in tech. You want to tell us about it or? No, no. It's... <laughs> no. I'm going to be there first if the opportunity arises. <laughs> <laughs> every, for the sake of listeners, every time I speak to Mudwenner, there's always a secret project going somewhere. I, and she, there's always something I ask her about. And she's like, oh, yes, I can't tell you. It's a secret. <laughs> yeah, well, one has to have some, some, something special up one's sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'd like to do now is move into our standard questions. I think we've touched on some of these already, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll see what your thoughts are. So what was the most recent public announced investment you made and why do you make it? Gosh, well, I don't sort of really invest as an angel right now because I like spending my money on my projects. Um, The most interesting one, I suppose, that I did, which is sort of not one of my secrets, is I did this crowd rating business, which I set up. Yes. And we, we then sold that for equity. So in 2017, 18, so... So that was a fun project. I remember that so, business, yes. Yeah, really interesting business. Very hard to monetize. So we sold it on to someone else. So Yeah, we, we, we as in Hardman Co., we have experimented a little bit in the, in the crowdfunding market. You mentioned earlier about angels willing to pay for stuff. I think crowdfunding, finding people who are willing to pay for a service is very hard. When you're only investing a few hundred quid, it, it's very hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... In the classic VC triumvirate of market product and management, we know they're all important, but which one oh. do you think is the most important? Okay. Execution, resilience, and timing. Oh, <laughs> you're just going to give me three different ones. Seriously. Yeah. Execution, mm-hmm. resilience, and timing. That's your triumvirate. Yeah. Fair enough. So tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. Uh, I massively failed economics at university so badly. <laughs> I went to the first lecture and they had that thing about guns and butter. And I thought, how nonsensical. Clearly the people with guns will kill the people with the butter. So this is a stupid thing. Thereafter, <laughs> I did not. I failed to understand economics and they failed to understand me. So um, anyway, I got an average proud to say, because I'm usually a coward enough not to try things I won't pass, mm-hmm. if I'm honest. So rather yeah. than taking lots of risk and failing a lot, I, I'm actually quite cowardly in that way. But um, so this guy, I got an average of 17%, really bad, which considering it was university, that's even worse. Anyway, um, so uh, what did I learn? Be honest, because I put that on my job application form and got a job in the city as one of the top paid jobs of my generation. I think, in fact, it was the best paid job in the city you could get at the time. So well, surely, how much they really value economics? <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, it, it went perhaps, perhaps. They were quite interested in other things, I suppose. But anyway, what I did learn was that um, I think economics is, uh, you learn economics, I think, best through life and seeing it in the real world, mm-hmm. or, or brains like mine. Yeah, so I used to brag that all the economics I knew came from a £2.99 textbook. Um, yes. And, and for years, that was all I'd ever read. And it seemed to work fine. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying I couldn't. By the way, there are lots of economists who are much cleverer than me, obviously. But so I listen to them. Yeah, listen and know what you can't do. So listen to the ex- people who can help you would be my other correlation from that is. 
So the EIS and VCT industry we work in is fantastic in many ways, but it's far from perfect. What would you like to change about it? Gosh, now that's a really curious one. Uh, fees. What do you mean by change for fees? Do you want to think less of them, more of them? I would like to see the industry really think and have an open debate about fees. The the sort of hidden admin fees that we charge on, we don't charge investors. So these are where co- people charge companies or the, or the investee companies rather than passing the fees on to the clients. Yeah, if- I just think, I just think, as I say, I, I don't want to sort of try and say what I think should happen. But what I think, where I think there needs to be much more clarity is around fees because of particularly what I see, you know, in small print. Yeah, fees are one of my pet topics. And the whole charging investors versus charging companies disclosure, to my mind, solves a lot of ills. And and I and I think there's one or two people out there who kind of marked as saying, you know, the line between fee free to investors and fee free is tenuous in some of the marking. And I think if investors are sort of not seeing the fees, what's the interesting argument I've heard? I'm very interested in your view on this. Is that there's managers out there saying we don't charge companies because there's so much capital for companies. If, if, if we try and charge a company, the companies tend to object and go to the people who don't charge them. So we get a better choice of investments by not charging companies, which I have some sympathy with. I wonder if, if capital comes shorter or less available, does that change or does that dynamic change? I think I think one of the things that hasn't enough been talked about is the the quality of work done for the fee charged and mm-hmm. for whom for to whose interest are you serving. I think if you start opening it up in that way and actually unpacking it and saying it, I mean the the thing we're doing at the moment, you know, we literally declare by the hour what we're doing and what we're going to charge. Then what you could do is you can have a very open and honest conversation with people about the value you're offering and the workload and your productivity and all these other things you should never be ashamed of that cost if you're really or as you are say as you're really good mm-hmm. not even say it, as you're really good why would you not be really delighted to expose all that incredible hard work you're doing and it's such a high quality that your customer really doesn't have any question about what you're charging them uh, I, th- I think if you look at it that way you suddenly open up a really positive conversation with people. I've got a lot of sympathy with that. I think I've seen in the IFA world, that's the challenge I think some IFAs have wrestled with, where there's, some IFAs are scared to talk about fees with investors because they're not convinced the investor understands, or maybe they're not providing services that kind of correlate with that. And there's probably some of that in the IS industry as well. Well, I think it's the job of anyone selling to anybody is, being able to you should be i mean i love selling people who've been the victims of me trying to sell to them i love selling stuff i really believe in (laughs) (laughs) i'm really proud of if i you know i don't try and sell things i think are rubbish because i don't like it yes so so that's a so that's a communications issue really it's not so much about the money you charge it's about the communications but also it's about what the perception of people is if you do not communicate that in the right way what what becomes the perception whether it's the truth or not and that's one of the things I think the industry in, in its entirety 
should have a really good think about. I think they've really got away with it in the last few years because it's been boom times, so it hasn't had to be addressed. But I think the, the sheep from the goats are going to show the people who really communicate well and can explain these issues around, whether it's fees or anything else, they will be the ones who win. And in respect, the respect of the market. And do you think fees are likely to go up, come down? What do you think? What changes do you think fees are going to happen to fees? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the whole of the industry is absolutely brilliant. They're all marvellous fund managers, because <laughs> obviously they are. Therefore, they're presumably able to charge premium rates and should be in inflationary times able, as you say, Brian, putting up their fees. So <laughs> I think the only way surely is up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost convinced. Not quite. <laughs> so as regular listeners know, I'm an avid reader and I always like to get new recommendations for my reading list. Are there any books out there that you like and would recommend to people? Ah, uh, The Art of War. Ah, Sun... Zeus. Yeah, fantastic book. It's like it's sort of got, you know, the answer for everything somewhere in it. Yeah, I I read it last year and it... It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the whole approach is just something like I hadn't read before in a way. Yeah. If I was being self-promotional, which I shouldn't be, but I'm now going to try, you could read my compendium of the Global Guide to Business Angels published by the World Business Angel Forum. We can post a link to that in the show notes. And Only 150,000 words of high-quality words and lots of charts. But, yeah, if you want the sort of, you know, I wrote it, over the last, it was actually published, I think, early this year, but I've been writing over the last couple of years. But it is the sort of the guide, including there's a massive a massive chapter on government policy and what's what different governments around the world are doing, which is definitely very interesting. I'm afraid we're no longer world beating. Oh, because there's, there was that report that several years ago, you said of the, of the top five schemes in Europe, we had four of them or something. Um, no, I'm afraid Turkey beats us. They give a 75% income tax break. And there's definitely some really interesting thought, that, that particularly the emerging economies are taking what we've been doing for the last 20, 30, 50 years and just going, let's get rid of the bad bits and use the good bits. Learn it, learning from our, our mistakes, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's definitely people who want to keep the status quo. And you talked about the sunset clause. The people who... The people who who think that's actually the answer it isn't because the rest of the world is changing so us doing what you know just what we've been doing forever it might make people feel secure but it's not actually the answer yeah the the challenge for the industry of course is that on the one hand they're scared that if they push too hard they'll lose what they've got which is always sort of puts people in an awkward position but at the same time we've got a government who yeah, I mean, I mean the the brief. So something a couple of years ago, and the brief basically came out. Okay, what can we change so long as it doesn't cost the government any money? Well, this is you see, this is the this is the typical thinking. So, yes, I actually I'm going now going to say is everybody go and read my book because <laughs> what you need to do is you have to think you have to think about the who you're serving. Yes. And you have to think about what val what value means and what risk means and what return means rather than trying to say I'm comfy and in that comes great excitement and a much bigger opportunity 
Okay. Yeah, it sounds like there's too many people. You think there's too many people in their comfort zones at the moment? No, I think they're all absolutely brilliant because they're obviously they're out there doing a fantastic job. What I would encourage people to do is think. Well, think think how to do things better, as a fundament in a fundamental way, rather than just doing more of the same. We're a really clever industry, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're an industry of innovation. There's nobody. Yeah, we're meant to be backing innovation. Yeah, that's another very good point, Brian. So, we should be able to be. We're very clever. There's, as far as I know, no. I've never met somebody who isn't very clever in our market, and we're meant to be backing innovation and change. So why wouldn't we turn that those that intelligence and desire to make the, our own industry significantly bigger and better? There's a challenge for everyone to go away and think about. So final question, what do you wish you knew when you started Angel World that you know now? Really good question. What do I wish I knew when I started? I think I wish I'd known how truly brilliant angels are. They're just like the best people on the planet. Because mm-hmm. if I'd known that, I would have started even earlier. They're just like the nicest, most interesting, unusual, curious, diverse people on the planet. I think eclectic's um, a good word. Yeah, I, I say ch- uh, charming. They're sort of, you know, they've made it, so they shouldn't have anything to prove. Smart, sharp. So that's what I would have, if I'd known, if I'd known earlier, I would have gone for it earlier. Yeah, certainly as, as I've got involved in this industry, it's, it's something as a quoted fund manager I knew, very, I saw vaguely aware of it, but didn't know that much about it. But the more I get involved, the more I wish, actually, I'd, I'd looked at this earlier. Yeah. When I was 16, which was about in 1850, Brian, I had this bright oh, idea. Like that. Oh, all right, 1950. Anyway. I had this brilliant idea, which I thought, poor old working women, this is like 1981 probably or something a long time ago, wouldn't it be cool if there was somebody who did their shopping for them and went around the supermarket and did all their shopping for them and drove it in a little van and took it to their houses. And I was so pleased with my idea that I went to my family and said, could you lend me the money to buy a van and I'll go and do it myself because it was much more fun than going to school. And unfortunately I couldn't and it didn't happen. And then, you know, then a car day happened, mm-hmm. go home delivery. So I was 20 years ahead of the game. Should have done it, shouldn't I? Then I would have yes. been a billionaire at 23 mm-hmm. and I could have become an angel and never had to work in the city. Yes, I, I, think, I think most of us have ideas where we sort of had this vague idea, never did anything about it, and then going, oh, I wish I had. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing, where should they go? They're very welcome to email me, Madonna Angel News. Go to Angel News. Mm-hmm. It's probably the best place to go. Uh, we'll post you know, to the show notes. Yeah, funding index. Please send entrepreneurs the funding index so we can have a record of what they're all doing. Uh, that would help. That sort of wider good rather than directly good. And then if there's any people in your world who want to be pluralists and not have a proper job and explore all the hundreds of ways you can make really good income flows by not having a day job, but doing all the exciting things that pluralists do, ranging from stock market investing through to being an expert witness, uh, even being a sports photographer, please can you ask them to join the Pluralist Club because we'd love to have more members. As someone with a sideline involving dancing, um, I can preach the the pleasure of doing different things. Oh, you'd be very careful because if I don't want you as a member, I'm going to ask you to come and speak to us at the club. (laughs) 
take it as payback for you coming on my podcast. <laughs> exactly. Good idea. There's a deal. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on, Maud Wenner. It's been a delight having you on. I, I've been looking forward to this. So thank you. You're very welcome. It's always nice to see you and any time. We'll talk soon. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.